0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with the victims at Tree of Life and with their families. We pray that you would bring mercy and compassion in that place and that your justice and your righteousness would come, Lord. We mourn with them, we lament with them, and we pray that you would respond. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We put our trust in your mercy, and now illuminate our hearts, Lord, that we might see the hope that the Scriptures present us with today of your salvation, your salvation that goes all the way to the nations. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So this morning we are in the final week of a three-part series on Christ and all of Scripture. Father Jonathan described this series in the first week as an extended meditation using the Sunday lectionary readings on the meaning of of Christ saying to to the disciples on the road to Emmaus uh, in Luke 24 that the law and the prophets point to him. We're preaching this sermon series because we believe there is nothing more important than holding onto and deepening the hope that we have in Christ. Especially in dark days. And to know Christ, we must know how to read the scriptures. St. Jerome wrote in the fifth century ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. The apostles tell us over and over again that in Christ the meaning of the creation is revealed. In Christ, the meaning and the purpose and the direction of our lives is revealed. Christ is relevant and can speak to every culture and every age. St. Paul tells us in Colossians that in him all things hold together, and in Acts, in him we live and move and have our being. But Jesus was born into and formed by a particular culture and a particular story, the story of Israel. That's not irrelevant to us today. That's immensely relevant to us today. If we want to understand who Jesus is, we must train ourselves to understand who he is in terms of the images and the stories and the characters of the Old Testament, which reveal to us the history and the priorities and the purposes that God had for Israel and that he has for Israel. When we read the New Testament, we should always be on the lookout for textual clues that point us back to Israel's story. When we read Israel's story, we should be asking ourselves, how does this text direct us to Christ? How does the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ reverberate through this text? How does he fulfill this moment in Israel's history? That's how to read the scriptures. This week, our lectionary readings point us to a conviction that emerges within the life of Israel over time. The sense that if the Lord is the living God the only true God as opposed to the dead idols of the nations, and if the earth is his creation, which he loves and wants to redeem, and if Israel is his people bought with a price and set apart from the nations to reflect his glory and to participate in the healing of that creation, then something is desperately wrong. Something is desperately wrong because the nations rage and threaten and oppress The righteous suffer under the boot of their enemies rather than prosper. And those who were set apart to be bearers of that salvation of God are infected with sin and evil themselves, so they fail to live up to their calling. That's not the way things are supposed to be. This is a desperate tension which the psalmists and the prophets are highlighting constantly. They're unwilling to relax this tension in either direction, either giving up on that hope that the Lord is mighty to save, or pretending like things are better than they are. They look at the tension straightforwardly, candidly, and their hearts break. On the one hand, they know that God is king, and on the other hand, they know that things are not the way they are supposed to be if that claim is true. Israel, who is supposed to be the Lord's agent of redemption, set apart from the nations for this work, instead looks exactly like the nations. Isaiah says in chapter 59, just before the reading that we had today, See, the Lord's hand is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. Isaiah affirms that hope of Israel. The problem is not on God's side. God is mighty to save. The problem is, Isaiah says, sin and evil and the brokenness of our own hearts. Verse 9, he says this, Therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We wait for light and lo, there is darkness. The wickedness is not just out there among the bad people. It's right here in the hearts of the people of God. This is a catastrophe of the greatest magnitude that Israel turns out to be in the same position as the nations themselves. Proper response of someone in this predicament is lament. The Old Testament, for that reason, is positively saturated with lament. Where is your deliverance, O oh God? Where is your salvation? You're mighty to save your people and your creation, so why don't you do it? You promise to deliver your people into prosperity, so how come we remain under the boot of the nations? You promise peace, but everywhere we look, there is evil and violence. Why? Where are you? And then most desperately, most discouragingly, the hearts of your own people love evil and hate righteousness. Where is your deliverance from that? That's the posture of lament. The people who believe that salvation is coming, but it's been delayed in its arrival. The people who know that salvation belongs only to the Lord. Nothing less will save. So they cry out to him in their anguish to come quickly. Now look, I wrote this sermon before the horrific events at Tree of Life Synagogue yesterday. And I want to say this as straightforwardly as I can. We stand in solidarity with our Jewish neighbors. We lament with them. We mourn with them. We pray for the victims of this horrible crime. We utterly denounce it. It is evil. We refuse to accept the violence directed against Jews in our community. Christians are directed to pray for and serve all of our neighbors, but especially we are bound to our Jewish neighbors. Although we believe we have a fuller revelation of who God is in Jesus Christ, the God of the Hebrew Scriptures is our God. The God that Jesus Christ calls my Father and to whom he directs us to pray our Father when we pray the Lord's Prayer is the God of Israel, the God whom the Jews also worship. The church of Jesus Christ is meant to include both Jews and Gentiles. It's made clear time and time again throughout the New Testament. I'll give you just one example. St. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that Christ has broken down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. He has made the two one. and Therefore, our hearts should especially cry out when we hear about violence directed against our Jewish neighbors. Our hearts cry out with our Jewish neighbors for justice. And we see in this horrific action an even greater reason to lament. This is not abstract. This is in our backyard. This is in our city. We cry out to God to deliver us from the violence and the vulnerability of this age. One characteristic way of phrasing lament appears in our psalm today. How long, O Lord? How long O oh Lord? That phrase how long O oh Lord is a way of putting into words the heart-rending sense that the people of God have in every generation that God's victory is assured but it is not yet complete. Lament is the posture of someone who knows they need deliverance but that neither they themselves nor anyone nor anything else in this world can deliver them. Lament is the posture of the one who has hope only in the deliverance of God. Someone who longs for salvation. We've been promised a feast. We're not going to settle for scraps. The person who is despaired of God's salvation, that hope, does not lament. What's to lament if we have no hope? The world just is what it is, and we have to make of it the best that we can. Although there's always been scoffers, as the Scriptures remind us, those who mock the hope of the Bible and find it implausible... The unique kind of mocking that happens in our age, the unique kind of scoffing that happens in our age might be a kind, might be described as a kind of light despair. I say light despair because we associate despair usually with a sense of heaviness or of depression. But despair and hopelessness in our era can actually feel like liberation, a gentle surrender to what we perceive as the sort of brute reality of things. We're on our own better make of it the best we can. Many people walk around with a suspicion that this world is all there is, that we are, as Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the DNA double helix, said, nothing but a pack of neurons. We are totally, completely, 100% on our own, lost in the cosmos. And the best we can hope for is a this-worldly hope, using our advanced technology and our prolific resources to make life as comfortable as possible for as many people as possible. Many of us are set in deep sorrow as we listen to former Christians who tell stories of their own deconversion and describe it as a kind of liberating release, a kind of illuminating insight into the darkness of the way the world really is. Almost everyone who leaves the faith will talk about their own suffering and the suffering of this world. Almost everyone says they can't hold together this claim about who God is with the way the world is. Novelist John Updike described better than anyone else what relaxing into this kind of light despair looks like. In one of his novels, he describes the deconversion of a pastor. And he says this, he felt the last particles of his faith leave him. The sensation was distinct. A visceral surrender. A set of dark, sparkling bubbles escaping upward. That's what late modern despair looks like. Letting go. Like releasing the air from a balloon. Giving ourselves to our suspicion that there is nobody coming to save us. So we better do it ourselves. Scraps. We're promised more than that. We're promised justice and righteousness. I don't know where you're coming from this morning. Are you afraid? Are you coming in with that sneaking suspicion that you're all alone? That no one sees you? No one's coming to save you, so you better do it yourself. I want you to look at Jesus. Look at him with blind Bartimaeus. What do you want for me to do for you? I want you to sit with Jesus, and I want you to ask yourself, what if there is someone who knows you, someone who knows you more intimately than you know yourself, who knit you together in your mother's womb, as Psalm 139 says? What if there's someone who knows your story so well that he's gathered all the tears you've ever cried into a bottle, as Psalm 68 says? He's going to wipe every tear from your eyes. What if there is one whose heart breaks with us at the violence directed at a worshiping community in our own backyard? Who knows that things are not yet what they are supposed to be. You promised a feast. Don't settle for scraps. If you want to know the God who sees, then you have to look at Jesus. He is the promised salvation of Israel embodied. Look at what he does in his ministry. He tells us that his ministry is to the lost sheep of Israel. And what we see is how much time he spends with individual people how he sees them and gently and healingly places his hands upon them and restores them to dignity, to health, and to sight. Look at this beautiful story of blind Bartimaeus. Have you ever thought about how marvelous it is that we know his name? He was just a blind beggar. He was nobody. He was less than nobody in Israel. We know his name. 2,000 years later, we know his name biblical scholar Richard Bauckham suggests that we know his name because he was well known in the early Christian community as an eyewitness to Jesus, a bright icon of that healing of the kingdom that flashed brightly upon the earth for a few short years as a down payment, a foretaste of what the end's going to look like. He was one who could attest in his own body that the Lord Christ was the fulfillment of the hope of Israel, the kingdom of God come in the flesh. Bartimaeus died. And all those that Jesus healed died as well. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus died again. Jesus' victory is not yet complete. It's begun, but it's not yet complete. Christian hope is not primarily a this worldly hope, our hope is in the resurrection of the dead that this world which we love, the goodness of which is so palpable and tangible that we can taste it at times. This world that is God's creation, that he loves and he wants to redeem, is going to be transfigured. It's going to take on divine life itself at the end of this age. The last enemy to be defeated, St. Paul tells us, is death. Christ tells us in, his God, in the Gospel of John, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This world is the creation that God loves, but it has been severely disfigured and darkened through sin. The days are dark. Can you feel it? The days are dark. We can still feel the force of Isaiah's description, of the psalmist's descriptions of things, because they remain accurate descriptions of the world we live in days are dark. Things are not what they are supposed to be. The person who holds on to and cultivates the Christian hope and the resurrection of the dead bears a deep and lacerating pain precisely because we hold on to that hope. We hold on to this vision of how things should be the way they will be when the victory is achieved. We're promised a feast. So we must lament that it's not here. To be a Christian is not a comfortable life. It is not a life that is free from pain and risk and suffering. We're actually called to put on Christ, to imitate him and his sufferings, to enter into his sufferings. That's the difficult call of being a Christian. It's not to be at home quite yet in this world. To follow the spirit of this age will always be, in many ways, an easier call than the call to follow Christ. It's not for nothing that the primary images for the Christian life of discipleship in scripture are the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. These are all images of endurance. Christian hope requires us to endure. None of these are easy callings. What's always remarkable to me is that in the book of Revelation, when John the Divine has a vision in which he sees into heaven itself, the throne room of God, he sees the martyrs those who have been slaughtered for their faith, and lament is on their lips. They testify to the ongoing incompleteness of Christ's victory. How long, O Lord, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's the martyr's cry, even in the throne room of God. We continue to suffer the gap between the promise and its final fulfillment. We can't expect it to be any other way in this time between the times. We patiently await our final perfection in Christ and the restoration of all things in him, in his kingdom. It's one of the principal tasks that Christians have in this time to cultivate hope. St. Paul says this in Romans 12, 12, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. That's the call. That's the call. Are you rejoicing in what God has done about the darkness? Do you look at Jesus as often as you are attuned to the 24-hour news cycle? I don't want you to cease paying attention to the news. I don't want you to stop fighting for justice. I want you to do all those things. But I want you to be at least as attuned to what God has done in Jesus Christ about the darkness as you are to those things. We're going to be people who hold on to the Christian hope that salvation has come and that the fullness of salvation is coming. In this time between the times, we must be people who cultivate attention to hope by looking deeply in the scriptures. We must meditate on the scriptures. The 17th century Anglican Thomas de said, if we will not meditate, we will lose all. Meditate on the scriptures. But we must also be people who have learned to lament. Look deeply at Jesus, at the salvation of God incarnate and learn how to say how long, O Lord, with the psalmist, with Isaiah, with the martyrs in Revelation. Thankfully, we're not alone in this endeavor. You don't have, the burden of this is not entirely on you. Our church calendar trains us to enter into lament. Advent and Lent are penitential seasons. They are seasons that teach sobriety. They teach us to look clear-sightedly at the difficulties and the, the troubles and the sorrows of this world and the evil that's even in our own hearts and to cultivate a deeper hope and longing for Christ's return, for the hope of the resurrection and the glorification of our hearts and of our bodies. These are seasons that teach us to look squarely at the world's injustice and cry out, "'How long, O Lord?' As we approach Advent this December, I encourage you to begin thinking about what practices you will take on that will train you to see that the world is not the way it's supposed to be and to long for that feast and not settle for scraps. How are you going to put on the Christian hope this Advent? What disciplines will you take on to help you see that God is doing something about the darkness in Jesus? If you have questions about what practices to take on, don't hesitate to talk to me or to one of the other priests in this church, we would be delighted to help you think about what practices will help you. There are sturdy practices that are are tested in the tradition that will help you. Secondly, I would encourage you to come and lament with us as a body as we mourn this horrific crime that has been inflicted upon our community this weekend. What happened yesterday was nothing less than an act of terrorism. And it is incumbent upon us as Christians to mourn with those who mourn. So tonight at 6.30, Ascension will host a service of prayer and mourning for the victims at Tree of Life Synagogue. We will pray, and we will sit in silence, and we will bring our laments. We will bring our desires to see the deliverance and the salvation of God. We will pray how long, O Lord, together. Father, your people cry out to you for the completion of the victory of Christ. We cry out to you for justice and peace We cry out to you that we would finally be at home. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.